Welcome to episode 20 of DLN Extend. We choose topics covered by the Destination Linux network that we think need further discussion and extend the conversation here. These shows include Destination Linux, Ask Noah, Linux for Everyone, This Week in Linux, DOS Geek, Tux Digital, and Hardware Addicts. I'm Eric. And I'm Nate, a Linux, fitness, and vintage tech enthusiast with an almost unhealthy obsession with the OpenSUSE project. So Eric, what have you been up to? Well, the new distro releases are coming fast and furious at, at this time of year. There's so many things to look at and try. I've been trying to keep up. A lot of this has been the Ubuntu releases coming up, the 2004 releases. And of course, you've got not just Ubuntu, but all the different flavors. And I like to at least take a look at them. So I've been Z-syncing quite a lot, <laughs> getting daily image updates and reinstalling and testing. So do you do the Z the Z syncing so they don't interrupt the streaming of your kids, your or your your daughter and your and your wife? Oh no, I've got plenty of bandwidth. It's it's just it it's, <laughs> oh, okay. it saves me having to re-download the entire ISO. And honestly, it's kind of <laughs> you know I could just click the link and say save as and you know get on with my life. But no, Z sync is much cooler than that because you know hey here's the old file. Why don't you go out and do a Delta comparison and and just download the pieces that you need. Yeah, I wonder about that a lot as far as how that actually works. Because, I mean, isn't the ISO, if there's enough change in the ISO, doesn't isn't really going to download the whole thing anyway? Or are there certain bits and pieces that... Depending on how far out you go, yeah. I mean, you, you definitely could be. So sometimes maybe only 30, 40% of the ISO you have is still relevant. So you're downloading a lot, but not as much, again, as the full uh, ISO would be. And the other... Th- side benefit of using Z-Sync is that it actually does the um, file hashing to check to the integrity of the image. So it, it actually does that as part of the download process. It, it finishes the uh, the sync and then it does the, the check, which is nice because sometimes... Yeah, that's you, actually handy. Yeah, exactly. Because sometimes yeah. I've had bad images where I'm like, you know, something's wrong here and go back and check and oh, sure enough. Right. I have two where you have to just you down, re-download the ISO because something just Got a one and a zero flopped on you or something. Yeah, and it, it happens. Yeah, so Z-Sync really makes that a much easier process. And um, and I feel like I've made the rounds. Uh, for the most part, I feel like at this point, they've had their beta release and it's feature freeze. And you know, there's not a lot that's going to change right now outside of bug fixes and things like that. So the other things that have come out are uh, Deepin 20 beta. And it's not something I would choose to run and it has really nothing to do with the privacy concerns that uh, a lot of people have. It's really a practical concern. If you were to try to run it, their repositories are based in China. And so the speed of updating is kind of ridiculous. I think they may have localized mirrors. I was having a really hard time trying to find them. The other thing is the like their uh, app store. It's built for a particular geographical region and unlike a lot of Linux distributions, it kind of feels like it fits best there, whereas so many others are pretty universal. The reason I wanted to try it was just the Deepin desktop environment and to see the changes that have made. It really is amazing the amount of effort they put into the polish, the fit and finish, and that user experience. I was actually so impressed by the installer that I made a little <laughs> a quick video because you never see the ins- installation process in a lot of times, in a lot of cases, when you're watching like reviews of uh, of a distribution. And so, I'd watched a few in the last week or so, 
and none of them had showed the installation. So I wasn't even aware of it. So when I downloaded it and was testing it and got to the installer, I was like, wow, this is, this is really something. It's super clean, very minimal, very elegant, and just asks you the questions that you, that it needs the information about goes into a very nice slideshow finishes up and then there's a nice welcome process when you come in it shows that they have put a lot of emphasis on that user experience and i imagine adopting linux there would be the same as it is everywhere else you know in most cases i'm guessing it's going on a as a second os on a computer and so you can tell that they've put the effort behind trying to make that a a an easy and attractive process for people to to do that. I haven't actually tried Deepin in probably a little over a year, so I wasn't particularly excited by it. It didn't, it didn't do anything for me. I, mean, I thought it looked nice. Uh, is, is there something like some standout features to Deepin, the desktop, not necessarily the uh, onboarding process, but is there something like about the, the user interface that you think really stands out versus other desktop environments? Well, ironically, I had actually gone on a bit of a tirade and was ranting about how <laughs> every review I've seen as, of Deepin was all about, it's so pretty. Look how amazing it looks. And nobody really goes into, well, have you tried working on it or doing anything meaningful? And that's kind of what it comes down to for me is the last time I seriously tried Deepin, yes, it looks great. Everything's well integrated and it's very polished, but I couldn't really adapt my processes to using their tools. They're, they basically have all their own apps. I mean, they, they use some uh, third-party upstream apps, but they create a lot of their own. And I don't know, I never really felt comfortable. Like I settled in and kind of got used to using Deepin. To me, it was like, it's a pretty face, but there really wasn't a lot of substance behind it, you know, style over substance. And it's a little unfair because, again, I think I'm comparing it to plasma or gnome or cinnamon or you know these other known entities that i i'm comfortable with already so there's a bit of a learning curve just using their tools and then comparing them to other things that i know and just finding them to be not as good at least for my purposes that's not to discount the work that they've done and i think many people would be very happy with what they've done because it is very clean it's a simpler experience less complicated you know, I could see a more general computer user sitting down and appreciating it for what it is. You know, I, just like that installer, it's very simple. There's not a lot of customization you can do. I mean, you can do partitioning and some things like that, but ultimately there's really not a lot of checkboxes and configs and things that you're going to touch. And I think for an experienced Linux user, that might be annoying because it's just going to do what it's you know what it's going to do without your input. Whereas if you look at most Linux distributions with the installers, there's a fair amount of customization that you can do as you're installing. But for their audience, for people who don't care about those things, and actually it would just confuse them, I think that it is a much better tailored experience for that that audience. I think that's an interesting point. Like for me, it's no secret I'm a big Open SUSE fan. And uh, I've always enjoyed the installer. And before joining Biddle, before like getting involved with the greater community, and when someone said, well, the installer's terrible, I was kind of like taken aback by that. Like, <laughs> well, what do you mean? It's great because I can do all these, you know, uh, I, can, I can really hone in on what it is that I want for each, you know, installation. It's a very, you know, uh, regimented process. Until I installed, I think it was like Pop! OS or something, 
Now I understand why many people would be put off by the OpenSUSE installer. There are so many levers and switches that you can pull to make it how you want that that can, it can overwhelm somebody. So I, I totally understand it now. Talk to me two years ago, I, I would have looked at you like you're crazy, but, but now I understand what you mean or what anybody means that now because I, I've, I've experienced those other installers that do cater more toward the people who just don't really care. They got a laptop, they want to throw it on there and you know, go right to work. Which is a very interesting point, and I, I smile as you say that because you know, <laughs> me today versus me two years ago, I, I wouldn't have understood what you're what you're saying, but now I have a better understanding, which leads into the uh, the value in doing distro hopping. I think it's, that's very valuable time spent, really. Actually, you know, obviously there's times when you can't do it, but like to really to dig in and understand, like deep in. And I'm, I'm gonna. I haven't watched your video yet. I just I got the notification. I think yesterday is that when you published it? Yeah, last um, night. It's, it hasn't yeah, last night. Yeah, so I didn't, yeah. I didn't get a chance to watch it. Yeah, so uh, but I, I would do want to watch that. You could, this way, I can distro hop vicariously through you on that. I almost felt silly making it. I don't even go into the distro at all. I literally just focused on the installer because there are already a dozen good reviews of the desktop itself. None of them, or very few of them, I think maybe one or two, actually showed the installer itself. And I called it delightful deep in installer which also made it feel even a little cheesier. But it, <laughs> I, 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 the idea of, we've talked about this, that something delights me, right? I mean, I, I use something or I right. look at it and I go, wow, you know, somebody really put a lot of effort behind this and I see it, I, I get it, right? It impacted me probably in the way that they were hoping. So for everybody to just blow by that, it seems like such an insignificant thing. I get that. How many times do you install Linux? Well, if you distro hop, like you just said, you do it a lot. And to me, that made it special because it was so radically different from just about every other Linux install experience I've ever had. Or, or the other thing too is, I mean, you may have more than one computer, right? You're going to install this potentially many times. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that's that's not really, that's not very fair to say when people say, well, you're only going to install it once. Today, I mean, but you know, okay, I mean, things are different now because of ButterFS and snapshots and rollbacks and all that <laughs> stuff. But yeah. You know, a uh, couple of years, couple, maybe several years ago now, back in the stone ages of Linux, you know, like what, is five years ago, stone ages of Linux now? Is that, is that what sure we're going to Sure feels like it, with? doesn't it? It does, doesn't it? Yeah. Like looking back, I find that knowing how to install it and then understanding, for me anyway, understand the different levers to, to flip or, or how to do this efficiently, you know, when you have more than one computer, it becomes really quite vital, I think. So in case that wasn't enough, Endeavor OS had an April release. And they have made some changes to the Calamari's installer. They've done some theming on that and made it more stable with partitioning. They've included some new tools. They have an i3 version now. And they decided to not pursue custom theming of all of the desktops that they support. So if you remember Antergos, uh, one of the things they would do is each desktop you installed through their Cinchi installer would include a customized theme. And honestly, that was one of the, my least favorite things about Entergos. So when they were working on Endeavor, when they were mapping out their, their roadmap and they were so focused on these themed instances of these desktop environments, and I'm like, think about how much effort that's going to be. Yeah. And really, are your users going to just leave that theme alone or are they just going to go switch to the theme they want? So just have a vanilla install and then let us tweak it from there. Include your tool set, you know, maybe have a wallpaper or stuff like that. And that's exactly what they did in December, but they had still been considering doing that custom theming for every desktop. And 
Fortunately, they decided no, you know, the response to the December release was overwhelmingly positive that everything was just vanilla. And so they made the decision not to pursue that and use those resources and that time for something else. So that's good news to me. I know you have your opinions on Arch and people will say that (laughs) Arch is hard to install. And it's, I don't know that I would say hard is the right word. It's annoying to install in a lot of cases. I know why they do it because they want you to think about your machine and, and put the pieces in place that actually make sense for you and let you make all the decisions. It's very much their philosophy and that's fine. But for most people who want to use Arch, it's just overkill. There was definitely a time where PC hardware was not as powerful. Most people have machines that are way more powerful than they'll ever need. They don't ever come close to maxing out the memory or the CPU. Like it's it's like having a car that can go 200 miles an hour and you can only ever go 45. That wasn't always the case. PCs used to be like you'd be right at the edge or using all the memory and or you know yeah. you're max <laughs> maxing out the CPU because there was no such thing as multiple cores and these hugely powerful, you know, CPUs that we have today. And you know, SSDs and like the you know, computer technology today is amazing. And so in those old days you really did have to think about like you know, what makes sense for this computer? How can I optimize it? You know, maybe building my own kernel was a good idea. You know, there's, there were lots of things that you could do to increase performance. But today I argue that, you know, the generic kernel, you know, most of the default settings, you know, maybe if you have a laptop, you want to tweak some things so you get better battery life. But and ultimately you just don't need that level of customization in most cases. So to bring this back to my to where I was actually talking about Endeavor is just a great way to install Arch, pick the desktop you want, have it set up so that you don't have to do all of the a little little minutia that can get really annoying and it just works really well. They have a great community. I'm a big fan of what they do and it has nothing to do with me being a champion or anything like that. I use it and it works really well. So that's the proof to me that it's worth talking about and making sure other people know that it's, to, to me, it's the best option to get an almost 100% vanilla Arch install with the desktop of your choice, with a nice set of tools that let you do things like pick the mirror that you should, you know, the mirrors that you want to use, uh, setting up your drivers for your video card, stuff like that. And it, then it just gets out of your way, which is great. Now you're correct. I've not had great experiences with Arch. I've, uh, it's been a little bit dubious at best, but I, I still have, I'm um, of the, the fundamental core belief that if it works for you, it's probably the right solution. You know, I, the problem with me is I'm kind of lazy or, or maybe let's say inconsistent. I'm very structured about some certain things in my life and I'm very unstructured about a lot of other things. Just, you know, it's kind of like what you pick and choose your battles over the last few weeks, specifically, like let's say, um, uh, since about February, so we're talking more than just a few weeks, a couple months, uh, there's been certain areas where I've had to kind of let go, you know, like like, I, like hobbies and, and fun things that I normally would do. I've kind of had to like let go or kind of put on the back burner while I try and take care of like life things. And frankly, you know, a lot of Linuxy stuff that I've, I've really enjoyed doing, a lot of the more uh, periphery things have kind of fallen away because I haven't had the time to really explore and, and dive into Whatever they may be, it was exploration things that I, mm-hmm. I, I like to yeah. do. Oh yeah, and and what I've what I've realized also is 
my consistency and some of the other like peripheral computers in my house have not been updated uh, very regularly either. Mm-hmm. And so what I, I'm very grateful right now that I am running Tumbleweed, which is, you know, I, I can bring these things to, to current because, uh, you know, it can handle that. And I've not had the experience with Arch that it is quite as tolerant to my negligence, I guess, has been my, my issue. Like, I can be very negligent with some of my computers. You know, I guess maybe cron job, right? Well, yeah. I mean, but can you really trust <laughs> I all that? I mean... No, that's the difference between, I mean, yes, Tumbleweed's rolling, but it's a snapshot rolling. It's, it's almost like more, more like Manjaro in my mind where, you know, Manjaro is based on Arch, but because they have their own repositories and they control the release cadence, they can test and, you know, not just literally every package that gets marked as, as live just gets streamed down to your system. Yeah, I get it. And Arch is definitely not the most user-friendly, not only from an update standpoint, but even little things like, yes, you install cups, you set up your printer, but guess what? If it's a network printer, well, you have to go in and set up three other things and services and start them and configure them to be able to print to a network printer. It is literally like a box of Legos. If you know how to build what you want to build, it's great because then those are the pieces you use and you don't need all, all the other pieces, but you have to build it. And at the end of the day, for a general purpose desktop operating system, it can get really frustrating because it's just little things like that where I've just spent 15 minutes, 20 minutes setting up printing and you think like, what am I gaining from this? And that's why Manjaro and Endeavor and and other offshoots derivatives of Arch, that's where they can step in and make that a better experience for people. So yeah, Endeavor for me, it's just the way that running Arch makes sense to me. And I really like the community, and um, and I think they're doing a great job. I will have to say, speaking of Endeavor OS, it's almost, I know that's a, it's basically, it's an offshoot of Antigros, or Entergros, however you say it, but I've actually kind of forgotten that it's new. Does it feel like that it's kind of like that? Like, it doesn't, it doesn't really feel like it's a new distro, it just, it feels like it's just been there, or, or am I crazy? So it's not really the successor to Antergos necessarily, and I know they don't really like that comparison. Spiritual successor. Yeah, and even that, I think they kind of feel a little... I mean, the concepts behind it are very similar. A lot of the people are the same. The, you know, Brian was a community member and a moderator and, you know, just someone who was very involved in Antergos. And so when that wasn't an option anymore, that was the impetus behind Endeavor. It does carry forth a lot of the same concepts, but they're they're definitely doing things their own way. They feel seasoned though. They feel like they're already a seasoned distribution. Like they don't they don't feel like they're a brand new upstart. You know what I'm saying though? And I know they're ba- they're based on, on Arch, so that's right. That has that seasoning that they're benefiting from. But it, it just it it feels like they've got a lot of things, you know, really dialed in. You know, and again I'm not an Arch fan at all, really, but I do feel like Endeavor is a dialed in distribution of Linux. I think like they just kind of seem to have things going the right way. In other hot news. No, that's a stupid way to start. Hot news. Hot news yeah. <laughs> I already like it. You have to run with it now. <laughs> the puns, the puns keep coming. So hot news. Here we go. Uh, I know everybody's just dying to learn more about my closet studio setup here. So it's, no surprise. I would it's, like a tour at yeah. some point. Well, yeah, it's going to take you like... Do a, you should do it. <laughs> you, you need to do... <laughs> uh, you need to do a YouTube video tour of your studio. <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah. And I'm sure it's going to be like, what, three minutes? But I still want you to do that. That's right. Yeah. Just as tongue in cheek, as tongue in cheek. <laughs> <laughs> Just because everybody else does it. <laughs> uh, I would love that. And oh, uh, I think you really need to do that. I think I, I actually, I went from bla- joking to being serious now. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> well, I'm, I don't know. I may, it, we'll see. Cause I, it's, I'm slowly piece by piece uh, getting it put together. So, not surprisingly, it's very warm in here most of the time. And uh, I had this little fan, which I bought because it said it was silent. And maybe it's pretty quiet in an open room where you can't hear it. But in a very quiet space like this, it was not silent at all. And so I was looking for a replacement. I thought a case fan would be great, like 120 millimeter, 140 millimeter you know, just a big fan that turns slowly that moves a lot of air and is almost silent. And so I started looking at, well, maybe I can just build one, you know, just take, it's a 12 volt fan, but, you know, get the converter, you know, wire it to USB and then I can run it that way. And so I started looking at the parts and I realized that piecemeal, it was going to be more than just buying one that was ready made. And so I bought one that is, it was $15. I was like, all right, it's $15 off Amazon. It's probably going to be garbage, but I'll give it a shot. So what do you think of it? It's fantastic. <laughs> it's still funny. <laughs> <laughs> I can't help myself. What can I say? It may be the best $15 gamble that I've ever made. The intent of it is that it's for cooling game consoles, and you can put it over top of the air vent on like a, I guess a Xbox or a PlayStation or something, and it will act as an external fan. It has very nice little rubber feet on it. And the cord that comes with it has a three stage speed controller. And you can also daisy chain up to six of them together off of the same controller. You know, the wire is nice, you know, solid wire. The switch feels very solid and not junky. <laughs> the fan itself is good quality. It's on now and I'm there, you can barely hear it. I mean, it's, it's the little things in life that make me happy. Honest to goodness, a $15 case fan off of, uh, off of Amazon. Well, that's awesome. I'll take those gambles from time to time. And you know, it's a, a quote from my favorite TV show. Some days you get the bear, some days the bear gets you. And typically the bear gets me. <laughs> so Nate, it's been a few weeks since we've talked. I know with this current situation, we have our children home with us and I've been helping my daughter a lot with schoolwork. You have been home as well. and Well, here's the weird thing. I, I figured when the things got locked down, I was going to have all this extra free time because I'm not driving. It was 40 minutes every day I should recover from my day, right? Well, plus, you know, other things too, the logistics of, you know, getting ready and moving the kids around and doing these other things that I would have to do. I, I figured I'd have a lot more time, right? And for some reason, I have less time. I've been really trying to kind of work out why do why is it that now that I'm going into the office zero days a week as opposed to three, why is it I seem to have a third of the time I did previously? And uh, I, I think I've come down to the, the, the reason is, you know, all these like after school activities and other things that the kids would do are not happening now. And so now they are turning their need for attention to me. And, you know, being a, a single parent, uh, it's very hard to offload any tasks, very challenging to offload these tasks. So I'm not getting as much done. And then when I do have a little bit of time, I, I kind of sit and I turn into something about the shape of Jabba the Hutt on a couch. And I, I just kind of, oh, 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 at the TV. So I'm, um, 
I, I think I've become a little bit of a slug. And I, I don't really know exactly what my problem is. But I will say I have been a little bit more, um, I, I've been doing some other, you know, uh, besides spring cleaning. I did have a project this week, an, an OpenSUSE project. It was uh, somebody gave me a busted up old laptop that had OpenSUSE Leap 42.2, which is like four years old now, I think, three years old. And uh, they're having problems, you know, watching things on, on the interwebs. You know, that's been long since fallen out of uh, support. So I thought I'd give it, a, give it a whirl, see what would happen if I upgraded OpenSUSE Leap from 42.2 to 15.1, just doing not the offline uh, upgrade, but actually going in there and changing the repositories, pointing them all to the new applications, the new software repositories. And I was amazed, although it took this Core 2 Duo machine about two hours to finish the task because it, it, was, it was just so slow, but it installed 1,500 packages and it works. It oddly just works. And I was rather impressed by that. I don't think the computer's going to work for much longer, but the but the software actually worked and everything seemed to seems to be working just fine. You know, everything even even suspend, you know, suspending to RAM, it works. Wow. Yeah, you know, the Wi-Fi, it works. Everything just just happens to work and I mean, I don't closing the lid on it, uh, you can hear the crunching of the plastic as you do it, so don't <laughs> do that part. But and I did advise to get a new laptop, but you know, you know how that goes. But anyway, so I was pretty impressed by that and uh, so it was just it was neat to see that that actually worked. That's not a supported upgrade, by the way. That, that upgrade path, that's not a supported thing. Yeah, I don't yeah. think you'll get anyone to, to agree to that. But it did. It, you know, a lot of things that are unsupported seems to work from time to time. And then uh, since we last talked also, my uh, my mobile phone died on me. I went to this endless boot thing. Oh. I tried all the tricks on the uh, on the interwebs to try and get it to come back. Oh, it's a it's a Nexus 6P, so it's, you know, that's a five-year-old phone. It's, already, it's past its end of life. So I, I'm, I went back to my my Google Pixel, which I don't care for. And, uh, you know, it's going okay. That, I mean, no, actually, it's not going okay at all. Scratch that. <laughs> it's, I'm functioning. And uh, I, need, I, I need to replace the phone. So I, I started a, um, a thread on the, uh, the, the discourse. I don't know if you saw it. It wasn't that exciting of a thread. Uh, is the Pine phone ready for prime time? I, uh, I did have someone actually reach out to me directly and say, I've been using it. He, well, he also has an, an iPhone because he does like FaceTime with his family because that's they're stuck on that one on the whole FaceTime thing. But it looks like a lot of people are saying it's you know ready to go. I could you could I could uh, potentially I mean for what I need it for is not very much. That's the question, right? Is it ready to be a complete replacement? And I would guess that most people will say no, especially if you're taking into account things like proprietary applications for you know banking and and things like that. We're not going to see that kind of support for a while, unless they do something like an Android emulator, which maybe they will. Who knows? Right. But if you were to say, "Could I use it for all the things except that?" Then I think the answer seems to be yes. So I was I was thinking about that, and uh, I think there are a couple of applications that I do use that that might be an issue. So what what is it that I would need? I, as, you know, we've talked about this before. So I'm going to take the plunge. I'm going to buy it. I want to see, I want to try, uh, I don't need the phone right now, but before I do actually need the phone, because the, the Google Pixel, the battery is failing on it. I need to have something. I don't want, I, I dislike the Google Pixel so much. I don't even want to put a new battery in it. So I'm going to keep that one just at home. And if I need to deposit a check, I'll use that for, you know, if I can't do it on, with the, uh, the Pine phone, but I, I'm going to, I'm going to try Ubi ports. I'll try the Manjaro. I'll, you know, I'll see what, what works best for me for what I need. And you know, if an Android emulator will get me close enough to what I need, you know, which is, the banking app, or there's there's a, a local chain, you may be aware of it, called Meyer. I like their M-Perks application. I know mm -hmm. that sounds really dumb, and I'm sure, I'm sure 
Ryan is going to be, you know, rolling in his office chair, you know, just absolutely shocked that I would have such a uh, intrusively invasive, uh, you know, non-privacy respecting application on my phone. But I happen to like it because it gets me discounts. And if I see, oh, I can save $2 here and $3 here, you know, that that works well for me. But anyway, I'm giving it a go. I'm ordering one. I decided just I'm not going to dilly-dally anymore. Some of the, the feedback here is, is mixed on the, whether or not the Pine phone is ready for prime time. But I, I think it's just time that I stop talking about it and just do it. So that is what's happening there. When I think about the apps that I use, and if I if I still had, so you, you have the, the Pixel, and let's say you didn't want to carry it around because you didn't enjoy using it. When I use the banking app, when I say I need the banking app, really the only thing I need in the app is the ability to deposit checks. So if I could just have a device where I pick it up and can do that, I'm not depositing checks out outside of the house anyway. I mean, well, no one is now, right. but it, it's, <laughs> it, it, I never was anyway. I mean, it, I just needed it because I don't, I actually don't have a traditional bank. I have an online bank, so I don't have places to actually even deposit a check. You have to use your phone. Yeah, same here. If I just had a device that was here for that purpose, it wouldn't have to be fancy or interesting or anything at all. As long as it could run that app, then great. I mean, we've talked about this ad nauseum, I know, but it, I, I'm not a huge sit there on my phone person anyway. I mean, I want to f- make phone calls, texting, uh, and mostly communication. I mean, holy cow, who would have thought, right? Communicating on a on a smartphone. But I mean, that's that's really all I need. And if if I could do all of the things I normally do outside of those corner cases like banking, then I mean, it would be perfectly usable to me. So I'm very curious to see what you think, because I think you and I are very similar in that regard. And I think if you were able to use it and enjoy using it for those tasks that you see uh, as being useful on a smartphone, I would probably be much more inclined to take the plunge myself. I, the phone I have right now is fine. I mean, I, I literally, I couldn't care less about phones and any of it. Like it's, it's, it's just a necessity of modern life. Right. That's how I look at it too. Yeah. I would, I would say, you know, for me, cause I don't actually like the phone as long as I can have telegram, if I can get a, a version of of discord on it so i can keep track of, of things in there and a web browser oh also sync thing i gotta have sync thing if sync thing works i'm, I'm i got a 95 percent solution right there i can deal with the other things we've been talking about and i think a lot of the community everybody's focused on the things you can't do because oh well that's an android or an ios thing but we really haven't talked about the things you can do so i mean you mentioned sync thing it's a linux operating system so presumably Anything you can do on Linux within the confines of the hardware. <laughs> exactly. You could now do on a phone, which is, it opens up an entirely new set of options that we, you know, again, we, we focus on, oh, well, it doesn't do this. Yeah, but the whole reason we want a Linux phone is because you can do all the other things that you can't do now. Yeah, it's all the things that you can't do with those other operating systems that I don't want to deal with, essentially. Because to me, Android or I, iOS, they don't do the things that I want them to do. But, I, but if it, the phone will do the things and concentrate on those things that I want them to do, then to me, that's a win. Exactly. So it's not just a, a one-to-one analog comparison. It's this device is built to be a prepackaged consumer device, and it's the widely supported version. A Linux phone is already a bit of a niche product anyway, but the people who are going to buy it are going to buy it because they want the power and flexibility, customizability of a Linux device. Right, exactly. So I'm going to go ahead and get the Pine phone and the Pine Time dev kit. 
I'm just gonna go ahead and buy both of those. Oh, nice. <laughs> it's 25 bucks. I know. It's like, it's almost like an afterthought. Like, why not? I do think the Pine Time is actually a very interesting device. I don't, I've seen Apple watches, Android uh, watches and stuff like that. I don't need its watch, right? I mean, I like that I can get notifications on it and it would, you know, vibrate and tell me that I got a notification or, you know, I like that there's the Bluetooth connectivity. I like the capabilities of a smartwatch, but I don't need 95% of the stuff that's on an Apple watch. When I see something like the Pine Time, right, we talk about the convergence aspect of Apple and that's one of their big secrets is that, you know, if you have their operating, you know, the Mac OS and then you have iOS and you've all your devices sync and talk to each other and it's very seamless. If Pine is able to do something similar with the Pine phone, Pine tab, Pine time, the Pine book, <laughs> I mean, all of a sudden right. you've got a really interesting set of capabilities if they, and they're not really doing much on the software side. So it would probably have to be somebody else who, who maybe looks at this, but I could see a case for convergence just like there is with Apple products where I've got the Pine time that's talking to my, Pine phone, and I sit down and time and you know pick up my Pine tab maybe, and a couple of years from now we might have a really good convergence experience on a, a bunch of interesting Linux based hardware. Yeah, that excites me actually. This episode of DLN Extend is sponsored by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean offers the simplest, most developer friendly cloud platform. It's optimized to make managing and scaling apps easy with an intuitive API, multiple storage options, integrated firewalls, load balancers, and so much more. You can get all this plus their world-class customer support for as low as $5 per month. DigitalOcean also has 2,000 cloud-agnostic tutorials to help you stay up to date with the latest open-source software, languages, and frameworks. Get started on DigitalOcean for two months free with $100 credit by going to DO dot co slash dln again you can get started on DigitalOcean with that hundred dollar credit by going to do dot co slash dln and we thank DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode of dln extend in episode 167 of destination linux philip mueller of mangero and vincennes of tuxedo computers talked about, well, Tuxedo Computers, and the right to repair that I thought was pretty darn amazing. Amazing is putting it lightly. So for for someone yeah. who manufactures hardware to say, not only do we support the right to repair, but we also encourage you to upgrade your hardware. Open it up and take care of it? Yeah. <laughs> to replace a fan? Yeah, exactly. We're not going to avoid a warranty. We're not going to put a sticker over it that if this is broken, you void your warranty or... Any of those ridiculous things that most hardware manufacturers do to be that upfront about it. So the DL crew was very responsive to that. And I know that you and I both value the ability to repair electronics. Absolutely. It's a disgusting waste in so many cases that you have a piece of technology that is all glued together. You know, maybe the battery dies on it and it's a couple years old and you can't even take it apart if you wanted to because you're going to destroy it in the process. Part of it right. is manufacturing things to be thrown away, but also just the idea that, well, if you want to fix it yourself, like, you know, we can't, you know, you might break something. And then I, I just, I think it's a very, who, unless you know what you're doing, who's going to open up a laptop? Right. 
and and also to to basically to stop that or to fight all that, it, it's very unempowering. Like I think Dell, like the Latitude series, they're, they're really good about allowing you to work on your stuff. There's no stickers over any of the, any of the holes either. I, I feel like when you can when you can take apart your laptop, upgrade the memory, or you know you put new thermal paste and and everything else on your on your computer. Uh, there's something empowering about it, saying this is my computer. I'm going to take care of my computer because I have too much sweat and blood inside of it. Hopefully not. That would probably <laughs> You're doing it, it wrong. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> right, we might have some tears, uh, and and maybe you might poke yourself with a with a screwdriver or something. Um, <laughs> but there's some there's some kind of like you're you're vested into it. I, I know, like when I buy a laptop, I mean, it took me, you know, my first Latitude that I bought, I I had that thing, and I took care of it for nine years. It was my regular driver laptop. Almost 10 years. Yeah. You know, I replaced a screen on it. I replaced fans on it. I replaced whatever because you can work on it. And to me, it's like, it's, uh, you know, for a guy like me who likes to take things apart and own their technology, it's like you're, you know, pickings are getting mighty slim out there, you know, for, for a computer. So to see that Tuxedo Computers is actually boasting, yeah, we want you to fix your own machine. You know, we want you to learn your own machine. And that got me excited. I mean, it was a breath of fresh air to to hear someone from a company say, you know, yeah, you know, we realize it means you're probably not going to buy a computer as quickly, so that that might have an effect on our short-term sales. But to acknowledge that this affects long-term sales for the positive, that was music to my nerdy ears. I mean, that was that was just fantastic to me. And and I was it's so not looking out for the bottom line only uh kind of attitude, but looking out for the for the customers, for people, for the people who are going to use their their stuff. That was so unapple of them. It was just fantastic. <laughs> I, 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 yeah. I love that in so many ways. I was aware of Tuxedo Computers. I knew that they were working with different distributions on developing hardware specific for those distros, and that's a mm-hmm. you know a laudable goal, and it's it's all good things. But I never really thought, oh yeah, let me go look at their products, and I, I, I guess I just didn't have like a genuine interest. But then to hear. Vincennes talk about their stance on that and then the way they're working with Manjaro and then, you know, the fact that they've been in business for so long and just the sort of their, their ethics and the way that they do business right then, pretty much I was like, Oh, let's go to their website and take a look and see what they've got. So it may not have been a marketing tactic, but certainly like you said, it got me interested in a way that even though I knew about their brand, I hadn't taken the action of actually going and looking and as soon as I heard something like that, it was like, oh, okay, now this might be, you know, and I don't need a laptop right now, but the next time I need one, uh, they're going to be on the list. Yeah, really. I mean, they, they absolutely are on my list now. They were not on my list before, even though they sold, uh, you could buy OpenSUSE pre-installed on it. They probably wouldn't install it the way I want it anyway, I'm guessing, because I'm a, I'm a walking edge case. But um, <laughs> yeah, I would reinstall OpenSUSE, yeah, on, on a machine. Anyway. That that totally put them on my radar screen just because they are announcing that. That that's that's an amazing thing. I'm hoping that this is a trend that's gonna kind of shift the industry of that direction of not only giving you the right to repair, but encouraging you to repair. That that's so much better. Uh, we mentioned Dell, and I think they're probably the worst example. Uh, worst example in that they are usually very friendly with. Uh, I mean, they build their machines like this XPS I have, which is a thin and light laptop. I take out the 12 screws or whatever there is and the memory, the hard drive, all the pieces that a normal person would want to change are just there. There's nothing else to take apart. (laughs) I put an SSD in my in-laws HP laptop and I had to literally tear that thing apart. It took me like an hour. Oh yeah. And I had to take (laughs) take the back off, take the screws, the bottom supports for the keyboard out. 
had to flip it back over. There were screws on top of the keyboard, flip it back over. Take. I mean, I literally had to disassemble that thing just to get to the hard drive. And you think, okay, they obviously intended that no one would ever be servicing this or the only people who would would be, I'm comfortable taking computers apart, but whenever I'm, I'm ripping a laptop apart, I'm extra careful because, you know, the screws are tiny. Those little ribbon cables and connectors are very delicate. And, you know, I'm thinking, geez, like I'm going to destroy this thing just to put a hard drive in it. Whereas all the Dells I've ever had, and maybe I'm buying the right ones, but they are very easy to, to upgrade. The other thing is I had an issue with my fans in this XPS and I thought for sure they were going to say, well, you got to send it back, you know, cause that's their warranty policy. And there's no way I'm sending my laptop back for repairs. Like one, right. I need the system. Uh, it wasn't broken that I couldn't use it. I just needed new fans. And two, I don't trust some random tech person. Like I can't send it without a hard drive cause they need to test it to boot it up. So what am I going to do? Put, I guess, a just one I have anyway it I would really prefer not to do that and so I thought well let me ask and see if they'll send the fans there's almost no chance they actually will sure enough they actually sent me not only the fans but an entire new thermal assembly with the heat pipes wow. and everything and the only agreement was that I had to send back the old part so I replaced it all and sent it back and that was it so I mean I love Dell I, I they've done well by me for <laughs> I mean, the better part of two decades. So it's going to mm -hmm. be hard for me to not buy a Dell. And they are so compatible with Linux in almost every respect. The only thing that doesn't work on this is the fingerprint reader. And that's not really, they source that from a third party who, they support Android, so they should support Linux, but they don't. But anyway, the idea that purpose-built hardware, and we talked about this, right? The idea of like a bespoke or a flagship device for Linux and the fact that it's Linux first you buy it and it actually has yep. Linux installed on it, not have to overwrite something else. All of that is very exciting. And now to have so many good choices, right? Because not only do they have this line of laptops, but they're also offering uh, AMD options, which is also interesting to, because the last time I was looking for a laptop, there were very few AMD options out there. Some of that was timing, but also some of it was just reluctance on the part of the major manufacturers to, I don't know, I guess, give AMD a, sh a shot. But, you know, something we talked about this briefly before we started taping, and um, you had said that you do have a bit of a different opinion on the whole planned obsolescence or the way that you have to design products in order to, I guess, make them, I don't know. I wasn't sure where you were going with that, but you said you have sort of a counterpoint to some of this. I, I do. For someone who has raided the, the dumpster truck to take home components so I could build my stand-up desk and light my workbench with LEDs that came out of appliances. Obviously, there's some conflict within me on this. One from a, a professional side, one from a uh, basement engineer side. And the professional side, if, if you folks don't know, um, so Nate designs, tell them what you do just so people understand. I'm a mechanical designer. I, I don't, I'm not a mechanical engineer, but there's a distinction. I do mechanical design structures and so forth for an appliance manufacturer. I, I come up with solutions, mechanical solutions for engineering problems. That, that's what you could, you know, in short. So there's the product development side, which I have been on, and I'm now more of like a, a uh, advanced engineering side of things, I guess you could say. That's not the right word. 
but uh, where we we're trying new things that don't necessarily go into products, but just experimenting. You're solving different problems, right? You're trying to integrate right, new, new yeah. technologies. And I could go off on the whole, like, why do we need touchscreens on a refrigerator rant? But, right. Which, but I'll say which, that. Which I will say my employer doesn't do um, because they are kind of in the same boat as you are. We can't support this type of a thing for 17 years, basically, is what it boils down to. And the average lifespan of a refrigerator is about anywhere between 15 and 17 years. That's 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 what they're how long people keep them. Now, that's interesting because I wonder if Samsung thinks that their products will last that long or care. I, I'm going to go ahead and say they probably don't care. Yeah. Because I completely get the sense that, you know, with all of the stuff they put in there that is, you just know is going to break, that oh, yeah. either you're going to pay a ridiculous amount to repair it, if you even can, or hey, you're just going to buy another one, right? Or it's going to sit on there partially dead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Well, anyway, so yeah. We, I kind of got us off track okay. there. But so you, yeah. you're designing products and you have to be mindful of certain things that maybe we don't think right. about. So the, the reality is when, when you buy something in the store... Most consumers are going to go down the line. They're going to see, let's just say, refrigerators, for for instance. They want a French door, bottom-mount style refrigerator. So if they, when they see that, they're going to say, oh, brand X, Y, and Z. Well, they all look the same to me, and this one's $100 cheaper, so I'm going to go with that one. That's typically how it goes. Or this one looks prettier, but I like, you know, I, I don't want to spend that much money or whatever. That's that's very often how it goes. It's, that's a more value shopper. That's the, that's a large number of the of purchases. So Or they both look pretty, but I'm going to go with a slightly cheaper one because people are, that's just how people are. Most people are, a lot of people are not that brand loyal, really. Some people are, some people, but a lot of people really are not. And I think it depends too, if people are considering this being a 15 to 17 year purchase, if I knew I was going to keep something that long, then I would probably be inclined to spend a little more money on it because that you're going to, you would out. be, well, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's true. No, I mean, price is a, is a major but, motivating factor. No. Yeah. So what it comes down to is what is the consumer willing to spend? Now, you talked about a, an HP laptop that had a lot of plastic clips in it. Is what made it sound like? Small screws and plastic clips. Oh, yeah. Now, the reason why they use plastic clips is because the time to manufacture that is, way, is, is, is vastly reduced. We can just you know, click pop that thing together and, uh, and out it goes. Well, every time you have to drive in a screw, there's an amount of time it takes to drive that screw. And then also, a lot of consumer-grade laptops, they don't have those like little brass uh, inserts like in a Dell Latitude, you'll see brass inserts if it's a plastic part so that you can actually take the thing apart numerous times and it's going to last. On consumer-grade laptops, you will not see those plastic or those brass inserts on the plastic uh, bosses because they don't want you to take it apart. They don't care. And they, they can reduce the price, reduce the cost of that device by, having, by taking out some of those, those, uh, those more expensive features. That's why some things like your, or your, your speaker you're talking about too earlier, which we didn't talk about on this. So it's not like a speaker... You know, that, that, that you buy this little cheap battery-powered speaker, you can't replace the battery in it because everything's all clipped and glued together because that's a cheaper process. And they can crank them out. If they, re, if they reduce the cost by $1 times 100,000 units, there you go. That's, that's your reason why. Me personally, I would pay the extra $50 or $100 for a machine that I know I can take apart. I personally would, you know, especially something like a laptop. So to me, buying a brand new, let's say from Tuxedo, uh, a computer for $1,100 that, that I can take apart, is worth a lot more to me than one for six hundred dollars I can buy at the at the big box store. You know that is made of plastic casing and and will likely crumble in about five years or three years even. You have to have those range of, of products. We do, we do. And, no, and it, it makes sense. It does. And some things by rights, you know, I I agree. Like a a reasonably inexpensive Bluetooth speaker, 
I mean, how much repairability do you really expect out of that? I get it. And, and really the right to repair is, is we, we haven't really talked about the right to repair. We've talked about the, the ability to repair things. The right to repair is some companies make it so that, you know, you void the warranty by opening up the cover on your laptop or what some other device. Um, I'm sure televisions are that way. I mean, there's lots of things that as soon as you break that seal, if there's a sticker, then that's it. All bets are off. Right. There's been some pretty high profile cases and arguments around high profile companies that are anti-consumer when it comes to right to repair or even allowing a third party that is knowledgeable on how to do repairs, making it extremely difficult to get parts, basically making it so that the only thing you can do is either pay that company to repair it or buy another one. So that's a little bit of a different problem than what we've been talking about. And I think the best way to deal with that personally is to just not buy those products. I totally agree. If a, if a product is just not consumer friendly, I don't think you should buy it. Also on episode 167, there came an announcement, an announcement that I've personally been waiting for since I think I joined DL, and that was that front page Linux is now a thing. Eric, you've written a few articles for it. What is it that uh, that that you you decided that you you like to write articles uh, as opposed to maybe doing videos? Like what 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 is that what is that line for you where you you say front page Linux is where I'm going to put this? I think what it comes down to for me is some things like quick tips. If I take the time to make a video on that, you know, a five minute video seems like it's just a five minute video, and maybe I'm overdoing it, but that's still going to take probably an hour to to research record, edit, and then posting it to YouTube is a whole nother thing. And so just being able to go somewhere and literally just write the instructions. So the latest one I did was setting dark mode for the user shell in Ubuntu. You know, I looked at that and I started to record the video actually. And then I thought, you know what? No, let me just create a post on this. And it's just more accessible. The instructions are right there. You can literally copy and paste if you want to. So it's a better vehicle for some of those types of things. I'm not the type of person that's going to sit there and read a 16-page, long-form article in a lot of cases. Uh, Not that I won't, but there are certain things that I think belong in a video, especially demonstrable things where you're trying to like literally show like a series of steps or things like that. But for quick tips... I just think that's a that's a better option for me. And I really didn't have a great place to put those things. I mean, you've got Cubicle Nade and most people have some place, uh, you know, like Eric Londo, who's the Linux Plus Plus was doing, was using Medium. And there are platforms out there and you think it, it's kind of silly that I build websites and I don't have one for myself, but I don't really generate enough content to, I think, have my own site. I'm, at least at this point, I'm focused more on videos. But, you know, when I occasionally do want to write something, I just didn't have any good place to put it. So, yeah, Front Page Linux, the whole point is it's it's a news site. It's tutorials and opinion and basically just all things kind of Linux, open source, hardware, gaming, covers all of the uh, the ground that most of the you know, destination Linux network shows and uh, community care about. I've known about it for quite a long time because I've been working with Michael on it, pitching in where I can to help you know build out the site. Uh, he did the lion's share of it though, and it, it looks great. He did a really good job on it. 
I've just, I've enjoyed having that outlet because there's something also too about writing versus speaking. I have two different voices. I feel like my spoken voice is sort of colloquial and it's conversational, I think is maybe a, a better way to say it. Right. It makes sense. You have to sort of think as you go whenever you're speaking, unless you're scripting things. And I'm pretty terrible at that. So there's something, <laughs> there's something freeing about writing because I can put a thought down and then refine that thought. And I have the ability to work with the words on the page in a way that it's very difficult or maybe not as easy with spoken word. I, I enjoy both. I enjoy making the videos. I enjoy recording podcasts and things like that, but I also do enjoy writing as well. So this is a nice outlet for me. And we have other people posting. I mentioned Eric Londo from uh, Linux plus plus he's got Linux plus plus on there now. And, you know, Michael's writing things, Ryan's writing things. We've got some other content creators that are posting there as well. And I expect to see more people jump on board. There's already great content on there. We're going to keep adding more. I know that now that I have this available, I, I can think of ideas where I may have put off making that video for a while because I was busy and I didn't have the time. Whereas now I can take the half hour to put together an article and, and get it out there. So you haven't checked it out yet. Go take a look. It is frontpagelinuxalloneword.com. We'll put a link to it in the show notes. And if you have any content or you're interested in contributing, just let us know because we love having different perspectives, different backgrounds, uh, level of expertise, and uh, it would be great to have as many contributors as, uh, as we can get. On episode 174 of Ask Noah, Warhead SE and Dago Red join Noah to talk about the art of troubleshooting. And I think this is sort of a mystified skill that uh, I know that I've had this reputation in my family and in, in my job where the joke is that if I walk into the room, something works. And if I leave, then it doesn't. Like I just have this, <laughs> somehow I have this mystical capability to make electronics work in particular computers and it's simultaneously infuriating and hilarious to, to them because they don't understand technology. And most of the time I'm not doing anything special. Like I just know what to fix, right? I mean, you run into the same problem enough times and it's like, Oh, well it's yep. almost certainly that. But if you do come across a problem that you're not sure of what it is, the skill of troubleshooting is just looking at the larger problem and breaking it down into smaller pieces, going with the things that you know to be true, and then figuring out the things that are left. I would say if I had one foundational skill that separated me from my peers in the IT world, it was that I had a very strong ability to troubleshoot. So it was never that I had greater knowledge necessarily, or that I had more experience or anything like that. It was just that I could look at a problem and do exactly that okay, well, this works and that doesn't, or it works to up to this point. And the example they gave was the OSI model for networking. And you've got the different layers of the OSI model from the hardware to the transport to the interaction with the, with the end user. You've got all these different levels and you can trace through them and say, well, if the cord's not plugged in, you know, there's your, your biggest Nothing I, else is going to work. Right, exactly. But <laughs> if it goes further than that, then you can kind of dig in a little deeper. Okay, well... I can ping something or, you know, networking is is its own thing, but you can apply that to anything. The hardware, you know, the computer doesn't turn on. Okay. Well, are there lights on the motherboard? Do the fans turn on? You know, you, you just 
take it step by step and break down the problem and then be able to trace it as you go. And you would think that that would be a very common approach. But what I've found is that in not just in IT, just in the world in general, is that people don't think in that way, I guess. It's often slightly disheartening to me how easily people give up or how unwilling they are to just think through a problem. You know, and we talked about throwing gadgets away or repairing things. And I, I guess I just have this sense that maybe people don't think, I, I don't know. I'm not even, I'm not even sure how to articulate it because to me, it just seems like complete second nature that any problem I face, whether it's on a computer or in my house, there's some system that's not working or my car or anything. You just kind of say, well, what pieces are in play here? What of those pieces are working that I know of? And then what are the things that I actually need to focus on to figure out if that's the problem? Doing what you do for, for a living, but also just your interest in technology and the electronics and things like that. I mean, do you find that it's maybe not as common as you would expect? Interestingly, I, I do find that the lack of understanding of troubleshooting is more common than I, like, I, I would assume that everyone understands how to troubleshoot. I guess that, that's kind of my, that's been my thought. But you're right. You know, there's uh, there are a lot of people who just they can't troubleshoot. To me, troubleshooting is fun. Like it's it's something I get excited. Sometimes not, but a lot of times when I have a problem, like yay, there's something we can figure out. As of recent, when I say recent, I mean like in the last year or so, year plus now, I've actually been doing troubleshooting type teaching with my kids. I'm sure you've seen this where uh, there's a problem and your kid just gives up, gets frustrated, whatever. And I have one kid who's who's a little bit of a uh, little bit of a hothead. I don't know where he gets it from. Maybe his dad. He'll get so frustrated at something and he'll just like have like a meltdown. And so what's <laughs> been, uh, well, I shouldn't say fun, but what's been encouraging for me is I'll go through the process of of doing a kind of troubleshooting with him so he can kind of understand where is it breaking. It has to, actually has to do with like a, the last thing was like some sort of a Lego set that kept falling apart on him. So we went through the process of, well, where is it breaking? Show me where it's breaking or whatever. And, you know, obviously he's mistreating it because, you know, Legos only hold together so well, you know, they're, they're meant to come apart. And so we went and we actually changed how this little set was done so that it held together better. So it increased the amount of clutch power. And he was happy. It's fun to go through that process of troubleshooting. And obviously these are really small troubleshooting steps, but what do you know? I know this thing keeps falling apart here, right? And that's where you start. We change something about it and it holds together a little bit better, and something else breaks. So then we can you know, kind of go down that line until he's now finally happy with whatever it is. He's probably a little young for anyway, but, you know, going going through the, the, that process. And I'm hoping that will continue, and, and rather than just getting frustrated and want to throw something out or be done with it, you know, having that uh, that troubleshooting way of, of looking at the world, he will be more apt to find a solution for the problem as opposed to just toss it. And and so when, when hearing, uh, you know, an Ask Noah, the discussion of troubleshooting, I'm like, yeah, that's great. Yeah, that's great. More people need to hear this. More people need to like adopt that as part of how they do life. I, I really think that actually that would that would make the world a better place. I can't imagine how frustrating it would be to not have that skill to just be lost. I mean, what would you terrible. do? You just you push the button and it doesn't work, and you just stare at it. I mean, I I honestly don't know how you could go through life not having at least some level of curiosity about okay, this doesn't work. Is it possible for me to fix it? I mean, it's, it's great that you're teaching your son to do this. I try to do that with my daughter as well. She does. She gets frustrated. And I don't see that as an unnatural response, but it's the certainty that you have the skill set to then look at it. 
there's lots of things that I'm not able to fix because either they're just too technical or too, it's, it's integrated in some way and you just can't fix it or, uh, but ultimately at least trying makes me feel as though I, you know, I made the effort and if I have to replace something, okay, fine. But at least did I try to fix it? And also solving problems, I think probably part of my motivation and the reason that I enjoy troubleshooting so much is I'm often doing it for someone else. You know, that, that, the joke about me walking into a room and something magically working, I have a certain sense of pride in that because that means that obviously I'm doing my job well, people recognize that I'm able to fix things and, and there's absolutely a great sense of satisfaction in not only the self-confidence that, that I can do those things, but also just that other people recognize it and that they appreciate it. You don't always get, you know, accolades and kudos for, for fixing things. Um, certainly in the professional world in IT, I mean, it can often be a, well, that's your job. Like, you know, whoop de doo Yeah. You fixed it kind of, kind of approach, but I, <laughs> you know, but I, yeah. I, you know, the, the little goofy tips and tricks kind of things that I put out there, my videos and things like that. I love getting feedback from people that it's like, I could not figure out how to do this. And this is exactly what I was looking for. You explained it just the way I needed to understand it. And now it's working. I, I get so much satisfaction out of that because I myself will try to fix something, but obviously if I can't, then I go looking for the knowledge. And if I can find it and, and that helps me, then I always thank that person as well. So I just, I don't understand how you could go through life not being able to just fix things for yourself. I think it would be a terrible way to live. I mean, you'd just feel helpless. It would almost feel like an oppressive way to live, really, because you're constantly like at the, the tyranny of smart people or whatever, tyranny of, of, of the people who, who build these things or who, of devices and machines. Like to me, a computer or an appliance or whatever is there to serve me, not me serve it. And I feel like if you don't know how it works, now you are serving it. That makes any sense. It does. Because everything that happens, you have to pay for it. And I don't want to do that. It's funny when people say, oh, well, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a tech person. So, of course, I never read the instruction manual. And I find that laughable because the first thing I do whenever I get anything is read the manual. Yeah, same here. To the extent <laughs> that I, the fan I talked about earlier it came with a little guide, little manual, and it mainly was how to attach it to electronics if you're using it to cool, you know, things. And But it was 10 pages and I skimmed through it just to make sure I wasn't missing anything. <laughs> I, I don't know if it's a certain sense of pride. I really don't know what the motivating factor is. That it's like, I never read instruction manuals. Like, I love technical manuals. I love instruction manuals. Like, I have a whole binder, every product that I've ever bought <laughs> – <laughs> I, have, I have a binder of all of the manuals and I've used For them. For me, I have a, t I have a filing cabinet. <laughs> yeah. I have a filing cabinet where I keep all the instructions. Yeah. No, I get it. Maybe part of that is just being a product of pre-internet life where you couldn't just find the answer to every problem or most problems. And you kind of had to have some sort of reference library. And so for me, that was just keeping all of these because I can't tell you the number of times that. I had a problem and I was like, ah, I've got the manual. I'll go look at it. And there, sure enough, there's the manual. There's the answer. So I, yep. maybe that's what it is. But I'm also the type of person that doesn't throw boxes away for things. If I buy a yep. product, <laughs> if there's any chance I'll ever need to either move that product or if I ever think I want to sell that product or 
if I'd need to send it back for a warranty, I just keep the boxes. I've got two dozen boxes in my, uh, my attic. I wouldn't use that space for anything else. It's not bothering anyone. And it drives me crazy whenever like you look on eBay, doesn't include original packaging. What? Why would you throw away the box for a laptop or for a, you know, I was looking at microphones and it's like, doesn't include the box. Like it's a small box. Why did you throw it away? You could have packed it in that and sent it to the next person. Some people think that's hoarding. It's purposeful though. It's, it has, it's. Yeah. Oh, I know. I get it. I, I bought a weather station three years ago. It's AccuRite weather station. And I, I'm actually going to toss the box in May, the next month. Because I keep it through its, uh, its warranty period. Yes. And that's when I toss the box. Exactly. And um, I just looked at that box when you said that because I have it down here in my, <laughs> in my, my cave. And I just started laughing <laughs> because like, yeah, I keep that. It, I mean, it's, for me, it's not just that. It's, it's anything that I see that has a value. So I'm, I will confess here on, on the podcast, I'm a bit of a hoarder. But I'm grateful that I'm a hoarder because I have these racks, these, do- these uh, shelves that have parts and pieces. And when I have an idea, I need a piece for that. And so I know right where to get it. I got a little thingy of screws. I can, I can dig in there. If there's not a screw in there, then I'll go to the store. But if I keep all these things, like boxes, because I need them and I use them. But sometimes I do have to go through a purge, which actually that was what I did uh, a couple of days ago. <laughs> well, that's healthy. You're not a real hoarder then. If you can purge, you're not a real hoarder. Well, yeah. I mean, I have this old ThinkPad that I just can't get rid of. I'm looking at it now right next to my Super Nintendo. I just can't get rid of it. I have no practical usage for it. It was running Linux some time ago, barely. I don't know that I will ever use that, but I just, this is, this is a, this is a hoarding item. <laughs> like there's some things that I will admit, this is this IBM ThinkPad is I'm hoarding. This. I don't know. I will never use it. It had Microsoft <laughs> Windows 98 second edition on it. And then later Mandriva Linux. I will never use this thing again in any practical sense, but I just cannot toss it. I don't know what to do about that. I may should talk to Alan Pope about it. Yeah, I'm sure he might find a home for it. I, a practical distinction for me between hoarding and just keeping useful things is it's not junk, right? It, yes, you might not be using it, but it's still purposeful. It's not so much hoarding as it is, you know, the second you get rid of something, you're going to need it. And that has proven itself to me time and time again. It's such a cliche to say it, but every time... I, I did a purge last year. I had all these boxes of cables and connectors and just old, you know, parts for PCs that I built <laughs> 10 years ago. And, and sure yep. enough, a month after I got rid of all that stuff, I needed a cable. I needed a certain screw that I didn't have. Like, and then it's like, where do you buy that screw? You can't hardware store doesn't have them. Mm-hmm. You can't just buy no, them. Not. It's it. Uh, and that's why. I you, don't get rid of them. You can go online and buy them in packs of 50. Right. Because I need 50 of them. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. That you're going to throw away later. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's not hoarding. And I, I had the same thing. I had four old laptops that I would never use again, but they weren't trash because they still worked. They didn't work for me and I didn't need them. So eventually what I did was I just reconditioned them a little bit and then I donated them to the local computer user group who sets up needy families and people who need computers. They don't need super fast computers, but they just need a computer at the whole digital divide thing. And I felt good about, Hey, you know, I'm not going to use them. They don't end up in a landfill. Somebody can, can use them. And, you know, I got them to the right people and it took extra time on my part to do that, but it was worth it to me to not throw it away. I cannot stand 
on trash day, driving down the street, the amount of things that people throw away that they just, I guess, consider to be trash. It's disturbing to me how easily people will just throw things away that they don't have a use for. And instead of taking to Goodwill or, you know, donating to the right place or putting an ad on Craigslist and saying free, you know, curb alert, whatever, they just throw it away. And it blows my mind. I am 100% there with you. Well, friends, we have reached the end of yet another episode of DLN Extend. And we'd like to think that this is a conversation. So if you're listening to us and you have any thoughts or opinions, feedback, things you'd like to have us cover or talk about, anything at all, we'd love to continue the discussion with you. Lots of ways to do that. You can go on Telegram, Discourse, Mumble, Discord. Visit the DLN website for information on how to connect. If you go to destinationlinux.network, you'll find individual creators. You'll find all the links to those different social engagement points. We love hearing from you. We really do. I I always check the forums, and I'm always interested to to get feedback from folks. I've had some great discussions in the last few weeks with uh, different topics that have come up. Nate has been posting some different things that we can't cover in the show. We just didn't have time for. It's great to see the, the feedback there. So outside of the confines of the podcast itself, we would still love to have these types of engagements and interactions with folks and uh, truly appreciate you taking the time to do that. As I mentioned, if you want to find out more about me, I'm on destinationlinux.network under the creator section. All of my links for social media and all of that stuff is there. If you have any questions or feedback for me, please feel free to get in touch. And uh, Nate, where can we get in touch with you? For me, the same. Go to destinationlinux.network. Under the creator section, you can click on my profile there of a uh, picture I need to send Michael a new one of. <laughs> and uh, Or you can go to cubiclenate.com. Links to my regular Written Blatherings podcast and YouTube stuff is there as well. And I got to say... Thank you so much again for joining us, being a part of our little corner of the internet. We'll be back again next week with another episode of DLN Extend. Until then, have a great week, everyone. Take care, everyone. See you.